Well, good morning again and welcome to Grace and Peace. Uh, we are beginning a new series this new year. Uh, we are going to start a series on the book of Mark. We're 16 weeks away from Easter uh, and Mark has 16 chapters. So we're going to be looking at a uh, number of different uh, stories within the Gospel of Mark for the next 16 weeks. Mark is the shortest gospel. Mark is the most action-packed gospel. Uh, Mark is the Mi Michael Bay of gospel writers. So buckle up. We're in for a journey together as we work our way through the gospel of Mark. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes the one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And, the voice, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat and mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask now that as we reflect upon it for the next few minutes that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, wills to obey, that we might see Jesus high and lifted up. In his name we pray, amen. Well, happy new year. I hope it's been a great few weeks of celebrating the holidays together with friends and family. Uh, new year is a time for new hopes new dreams, new prayers, new resolutions. And these really are reflections for us on the kingdom, on the good life, 
asking questions, you know, what would it look like for me to be more disciplined as I spend my time? What would it look like to be more disciplined as I eat? What, it would, be more, what would it look like to be more disciplined as I uh, exercise? How might the kingdom come in more fullness in these various ways? And it's a time for us really to ask, what is the good life? What is the kingdom? What is the story that is to orient our lives as humans? And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian here this morning when exploring the truths of Christianity. We all struggle with trying to keep these resolutions. We all struggle with even having appropriate and proper resolutions. We all struggle in knowing what the kingdom is and what the good life really entails. And the Gospel of Mark is the gospel that shows us so beautifully and so powerfully and so dramatically what the kingdom of God is, what the gospel is, what the story is that is to orient all of our lives together. So today I want us really just to answer two questions. What is the gospel? What is the gospel of the kingdom? And then what would it look like for us to be participants of that kingdom? What would it be like for us to repent and believe the gospel. So first, what is the gospel? What is the good news that Mark announces at the very beginning, uh, that this is the very start, the beginning of the good news of Jesus? Well, I think we should unpack that in a few ways. First, in saying what it's not. The gospel is not an individualistic story. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is about God. And that's something that we as Americans, I think, have a hard time believing and understanding because the way that the gospel has been presented to us in many different ways is that it's about us. It's about how you can have a savior. It's about how you can have your life made right. It's about how you uh, can accept Jesus into your heart. And sometimes the gospel gets told along lines like this. That even if you were the only person living upon the earth, God would still send his son to come and to live and die for you. I don't know if that's true or not, because obviously there are more than one person who's ever lived in the history of the world. But the way that that story gets told is it puts the emphasis on us, and the gospel is not about you. The gospel's about God. So it's not an individualistic story. Although there are individualistic implications, it's so much bigger. As well, it's not a social story, a societal story, a merely horizontal story that tells us how to get society cleaned up. Because we can look out into our world and we can see all sorts of problems. Problem of poverty, problem of hunger, problem of illiteracy, problem of disease. And we can say, okay, well all these things need to be cleaned up in our world. And it's true that those things do need to be cleaned up. And so we say, well, that's the gospel. Is It's the good news that's going to end disease, that's going to end hunger, that's going to end illiteracy. And we think about it just in terms of these horizontal stories. And that's not the gospel. The gospel does have horizontal implications. The gospel does have societal implications. But it's even so much bigger than this. So what is the gospel? What is the good news of the kingdom that Mark announces to us at the very beginning of his story? Well, in order to answer it, we've got to go back to Genesis chapter 1. 
back to the very beginning. And in Genesis chapter 1, we hear about all of these benedictions in the days of creation. God saying over and over again, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then as God completes his work of creation, saying, and it was very good. But in the days of creation, in the midst of all these benedictions, there's one day where God is silent. There's one day where there's no benediction, and that's day two. And what happened on day two is that God created a barrier. He put waters between heaven and earth. Genesis tells us that there's two realms. There's heaven and there's earth. There's a place that God dwells in his heavenly palace that mysteriously he's always had and he's always lived in. And then there's this earthly realm that God is making, that God makes in order to be the place where mankind will live and mankind will dwell. And the story of the Bible is that God is going to come live in this earthly realm. God's going to come inhabit this physical place with all that he has made. But on day two, God puts a barrier between heaven and earth. He puts water to separate heaven and earth. And therefore, God does not give a benediction. God does not give a blessing on day two. God does not say that these waters are good because his intent and his purpose for making the world is for it to be a place where there is no division, no barrier, no separation between God and man. That's why at the very end of the biblical story, we see when John sees the new heavens and the new earth, there's no water, there's no sea. There's nothing that divides God from man. And so throughout the Bible, the entirety of the biblical story is how these waters get evaporated. How these waters that separate God from man are evaporated and become no more. How people pass through these separating waters in order to enter into life with God. And you see this in a lot of different passages. You see this in Moses leading the people out of Egypt into the desert. They have to pass through the sea. They have to pass through these waters in order to enter into the new life that God has promised them. You see this in Joshua, where Joshua has to lead the people through the River Jordan so that they might get to the place that God has promised to them, Canaan, life in God. You see this every time that people enter into the temple, where at the very entrance of the temple, there's this huge basin filled with water, representing these dividing waters of day two, that people have to pass through these waters in order to enter into the life in the presence of God. And you see this through baptism. The baptism is passing through the waters, passing through the waters that divide us from God, in order that we have access to the life of God. You see, sin separates us from God. Sin divides us from God. Sin has one play in the world, and that is to divide. But grace unites. Grace reconciles. Grace restores that which is broken. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel the gospel is the good news that heaven is ripped open. Now, when we read what John says 
in the English. You know, it says heaven is opened up. And that's really uh, a, a bad translation, just to say that heaven is opened up. It doesn't really get at the heart of what Mark is telling us. What Mark is saying is that heaven has been ripped open. Uh, he actually uses this exact same word at the very end of his gospel to describe the curtain being torn asunder, the curtain being torn from top to bottom. This is what's happened in the baptism of Jesus. Heaven itself is ripped open, and heaven is coming down to earth. So what is the gospel? There is no division. There is no separation with God. There is no longer enmity with God. Good news, God has opened up his life to us. Heaven is opened up to us, and the way that we access heaven is through his son. There is a king, there is a ruler, there is a man in God's good world who has made access to heaven possible, access to God's life possible. There is a king who has passed through the dividing waters, and God's life and God's love are now known to us. So the gospel is the good news that in Jesus, there is no longer separation. There is no longer condemnation. It's the good news that we have a king who is victorious, a king who has passed through the waters to make God accessible to us. And because heaven has been ripped open, everything changes. Our individual lives change. Our societal lives change. The way that we think about living in society changes. Everything changes. This is the gospel, that heaven has been ripped open, and we have access to God through his king, through his son. Now, the word gospel, it's not a new word. It's not a biblical word. It's not even a spiritual word. In fact, it's a, a military word. It's a word that was used throughout ancient literature. Uh, it's a word found in many, many ancient documents. It's used by empires to describe what is happening when a new king arrives to take control of that empire. It's used to describe victory in war. Listen to how one Roman historian used the word gospel in order to describe what was happening when uh, their emperors, when their kings took power. This is a description of Caesar Augustus. Caesar, benefactor, savior for us and for those that come after us to make wars cease, to create peace everywhere. The birthday of the god Augustus is the beginning of the euangelion, the Greek word for gospel. The beginning of the gospel, of the gospel that has come to men through him. Elsewhere, Caesar is described as Lord. And there's a saying attributed to him that goes, No name under heaven by which men may be saved than that of Caesar Augustus. Caesar was declared to be God incarnate. He was declared to be the Son of God. Mark, 
is likely writing from Rome to a very Roman audience. And do you see what Mark is doing so radically and so subversively? He's saying, this person that you worship, Caesar Augustus, he is not the son of God. This person whom you worship, Caesar Augustus, he is not the one who has a gospel. Caesar is not the son of God, Jesus is. Caesar does not open heaven to us, Jesus does. Caesar does not save us, Jesus does. Caesar does not bring a gospel to us, Jesus does. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus we have a true king, one better than any Caesar, one better born than any other king uh, that's ever been born in history. We have the king of kings, we have the lord of lords who reigns over all things. We have a true king who has passed through the heavens, has passed through the waters, and opens heaven to us. Friends, there's no better story. There's no more amazing story. No more amazing reality. That's the gospel. And the gospel has these cosmic implications and these communal and societal implications and these individual and personal implications. So what do we do with the gospel? What do we do with this amazing story that says God's life is ripped open to us in the person and work of Jesus and we have access to God we have access to heaven itself through him. What do we do with it? How do we live in light of this kingdom, in light of this message, in light of this gospel? Well, Mark tells us in the next section, in the section following this good news that heaven has been ripped open to us, Jesus calls his first disciples. Jesus says, follow me. This is a military term, follow me. It's a command, follow me. In the gospel, we have a king who has opened heaven to us, and this king now says, you must follow me. It's not optional. It's not like can take following Jesus or leave following Jesus. That's what we like to do as Americans. We don't like the language of kings. We don't like the language of kingdoms. But this gospel says we have a king who commands us as our military leader to follow him. And if we're going to live in light of his story, we must follow. It's not an option for us to not follow. We'll never understand discipleship if we think that it's something that we can take or leave. It's not like that at all. This is a call to submission. This is a call to obedience. This is a call to following our king. And we see that this radical call to discipleship has many, many implications. Jesus calls us to follow him in everything. In our careers, we see this in the first calling, leave your nets behind. Leave what you've known behind as fishermen, and I'm going to give you a new calling. I'm going to give you a new career. I'm going to give you a new way of thinking about these things. 
in our relationships, leaving behind friends and family and all of our ordinary friendships to reorient them around what it means to have relationships in and through Jesus, to even call people in this room brothers and sisters. In our finances, restructuring how we think about money, restructuring how we use money, even the radical nature of giving money away. In our sexuality, restructuring and redefining and rethinking how we think about our bodies. There is no area in our lives where Jesus doesn't say, follow me, where he doesn't give us a command to follow him, to command us to follow him and how we spend our time and our money, to command us to follow him and how we think and how we dream and how we pray and how we hope and how we love. Discipleship is a command to follow our king. Discipleship is a discipline to follow our king in everything. Discipleship is a journey to follow our king into the mess and the muck of this world. And we see this in the baptism of Jesus. Where does Jesus get baptized? In the river Jordan. I've never been to Israel. One of my bucket lists is to go to Israel. Maybe some of you have been. I know if you go there, just having seen the pictures, uh, the River Jordan is not a beautiful river. It's a river full of mud. It's a river full of muck. It's a river, river full of dirt. And so Jesus, in his baptism, identifies with the mess and the muck of the world. And Jesus, in following him, calls us to identify with the, mech and the, the, the muck and the mess of the world as well. Jesus goes into the messy waters in order to renew and redeem and reclaim all of his world. And baptism in Jesus' name is to go into the waters with him, to go into the mess of this world, to go into the muck of this world, and to say the only way that my life, the only way that this world is going to be cleaned up and renewed and restored is through Jesus, who's a king even over these messy waters. Friends, when we do baptism, we don't baptize in water that's like the River Jordan. We ensure that the water's clean. In fact, we ensure that the water's warm. Uh, we test it to, to make sure that it's not going to be too shocking to anybody who is baptized. And I understand why we do that, but there's a sense in which we're missing out on this greater reality. To be baptized into Jesus is to go into the water with him, and Jesus doesn't go into clean and pristine and warm waters. Jesus goes into the filth and into the dirt and into the mess and into the muck of the world in order to renew it and to reshape it, and to redeem it. And to be baptized into his name, to take his name upon ourselves in baptism, to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, his life is my life, is to be willing and to be able even to be sent into the mess and the filth and the muck of the world in order to redeem it. It's a journey that we're on to see God clean and transform that which is filthy.
And then finally, discipleship is a joy. It's a call to follow him where he is. And you see this throughout the Gospel of Mark as we make our way through this Gospel. Jesus says over and over and over again to his disciples, follow me, follow me, take up your cross. Take up your cross to give yourself away. Take up your cross to have self-sacrificing love. Take up your cross to have self-giving love. And as you do, you'll be where I am. And as you do, you'll receive what I receive. As you do, you can't outgive me. In fact, there's a place in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus says, as you take up your cross and follow me, I'm going to bless you beyond what you can think or imagine. My love and my life will be yours as you follow me. And we see this in the baptism narrative. We see this in God's words that are spoken over Jesus. Jesus doesn't say anything at his baptism. Only the Father says something at his baptism. And what beautiful words are spoken over the Son. My beloved. My beloved. The one in whom I am well pleased. And as we follow our King, what we learn is that what is true of him becomes true of us. As we submit ourselves to this gospel story, the words and the realities that are spoken over Jesus become our words and our realities as well. What happens to the head happens to us as the body. So to be a disciple is to follow Jesus in everything and to have his words of love, his words of assurance, his words of grace spoken over us in everything. Friends, we're disciples of lots of different things. We're disciples of finances. We're, dis we're disciples of relationships. We're disciples of health. We're disciples of beauty. And all those things get reoriented. All those things get redefined as we become disciples of Jesus. If we don't have Jesus speaking these words of love, these words of comfort, these words of assurance, these words of our very identity, that we are beloved, that we are accepted, that we are well pleased, we're going to make a mess of everything in our lives. If you're a disciple of investing, and only a disciple of investing, at no point will anyone say, you've done it. You're complete. There's no more money to be made. That's impossible. We'll always look at ourselves and say, I could do better. I could do more. I could have made this trade better. I could have thought about this longer. Somebody else has more than me. If you're a disciple of business, at no point, and only a disciple of business, at no point will anyone say, you're done. You've reached the pinnacle of success in your business career. There's no more lessons to be learned. There's no more success to be gained. You can always say, I could do this better. Somebody else is doing it better than me. My competitors, they have this advantage over me. If you're a disciple of beauty, and only a disciple of beauty, at no point will anyone say, you've made it. You're the epitome of beauty. There's no one more beautiful than you in the world. There's no more beauty rest for you. There's no other things that you have to do in order to become more beautiful. It's impossible. 
if you're a disciple of health and only a disciple of health, at no point will anyone say, you did it. You're the paragon of health. There's no disease that can penetrate your body. You've stopped aging. You've done it. You've eaten enough kale. You're never, ever going to get sick again. It's impossible. You see, only Christianity says, as we seek to discipline ourselves in every area of life, that we have these words of love and these words of assurance that flow over us. Only Christianity says, you're my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. And notice when God says this to Jesus. It's at the very beginning of his ministry. We just started the gospel. These words should be at the very end. After Jesus has done all these miracles. After Jesus has practiced self-giving, radical, sacrificial love. After Jesus has gone to the cross. Then we should hear these words. You're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. You've finally done everything that I expected of you. Now receive these words of love. But notice that God says these to the Son at the very beginning of his ministry. You're my son. I laugh over you. I love you. I delight in you. With you, I am well pleased. Before there's any miracles, before there's any teaching, before there's Jesus going to the cross, at the very beginning of his ministry, heaven is opened up to him. And God's words of love and God's words of comfort and God's words of assurance come to him. And brothers and sisters, those of us who belong to Jesus, these words are spoken to us as well. In fact, in Ephesians 1 verse 6, Paul has these words to say. He says that we are accepted in the beloved. And the beloved became a term in early Christianity to describe Jesus. It was a, a name given to Jesus, the beloved. Uh, echoing back these words in Jesus' baptism, you're my beloved son. And Paul says, we are accepted in the beloved. We are accepted in the son. We are accepted in Jesus. And you'll never, ever, ever become a disciple of Jesus and follow Jesus as he calls you to follow him in every area of your life. If you think that Christianity is obey, submit, follow, and one day God will speak words of acceptance and assurance and love over you. That's not Christianity. Christianity is you're accepted in Jesus. You belong to God's beloved son at the very beginning of your journey, at the very beginning of discipleship. God speaks these words of love and assurance to you. Therefore, obey, repent, follow, believe. This changes everything. This changes everything. In ancient literature, people were always trying to break through earth to get to heaven. They're always trying to figure out where there might be a, a hole or where there might be a door or where there might be some uh, opening into heaven. And in ancient literature, the way that people got to heaven was by ascending themselves, by creating 
um, some sort of life or by creating some sort of building. Uh, ancient term would be a ziggurat, uh, something that they could make that would get high enough to heaven where they could break through this opening and get into the heavenly realm. And so there's countless stories of man making his way to God, of man trying to ascend to heaven, of man journeying to heaven, of man trying to pass through the heavens to get to where God or the gods are. But there's no story of heaven opening up to man, of heaven coming down to man, of heaven making its way to man. That's only found in Christianity. Christianity is unique in this way. Heaven comes to us. Heaven is opened up to us. Heaven comes down. And when you get this, it'll utterly transform your life. It'll utterly transform the way you think about discipleship, the way you think about obedience, the way you think about faith. It becomes a joyful journey because it's not about you. It's not about how well you perform. It's not about how much you do. You are already accepted in the beloved. You are already loved as you begin this journey. And when you understand that, then you can journey well. And you can struggle through all the things that you're going to struggle with in life. And you can do it knowing that you belong to a king and that you're part of a kingdom where grace abounds. So friends, as you begin this new year, follow your king. Follow him in everything. Follow him joyfully. Follow him knowing that you are already beloved. You are already accepted. You are already united to the beloved. And so therefore, give yourself away. Follow him in everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, that heaven is opened up to us, that heaven descends to us. It's not that we must ascend to heaven. It's not that we must earn our way to heaven. It's that you have opened up your life and your love to us because of Jesus, our conquering king, the one who conquered in great power by giving his life for us. Lord, we ask now that we would know your life and your love, that it would be made uh, evident to us in every area of our lives. And Lord, that we would follow you in everything, in the way we think about money, in the way we think about our bodies, in the way we think about our time, in the way that we think about all of our relationships. That your life and your love, that your heavenly reality would be made known in us as we seek to follow you. For this, we need your grace. For this, we need your help. Lord, as we stumble and fail this week to do this well, we ask that you would give us your spirit, that we might follow you in everything. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.